the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you on a sunny Thursday afternoon from Berlin where prior to this the heavens had been well and truly open for torrential business all week. Well yesterday there were further demonstrations about another downpour, this one caused by the explosion of a 2,000 tonne fish tank in the Radisson Hotel before Christmas, killing 1,500 fish, hence the animal rights activists demonstration yesterday, no laughing matter. My name is Daniel Freeber, I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll be mainly talking shock horror about actual cycle racing after several months of whimsically skirting around the subject while the pro peloton has been in hibernation our first guest today is joining me from Soyer in Mallorca in the Balearic Islands where I think he's going to pop down to the shops after this recording and buy a house true story and where last week he suffered the indignation of commentating on a race during which the Israeli rider Nadav Reisberg bettered his record on his backdoor climb, the Koiden Bleda, by the small matter of six minutes and 50 seconds over four kilometers. Even more remarkably, Reisberg's average heart rate on the climb was just 87 beats per minute, despite a VAM of 1923. Rob Hatch does not possess a driving license, so he can at least be eliminated from inquiries should anyone suggest that Reisberg was possibly in the back of a motor vehicle when going up the climb. Rob Hatch is, of course, the maestro on the mic, the voice of cycling on GCN and Eurosport, and he's here with us today. Um, Rob, what can you tell us about um, Nadav Reisberg's ascent of the Koiden Blader? Because it's, I would suggest it's slightly suspicious. I would suggest that you've been on Strava. I thought I had a like for nothing there. I thought you were being extremely kind to me the other day, <laughs> but there turns out you were looking at my history. Well... It was it was rapid, wasn't it? I mean, you know, I was go- I was going well, as you well know, that fateful hot summer when we were flying up those hills. But yeah, and someone else also has also beaten your record on that. Doesn't surprise me, Daniel. I'm not a professional bike rider. Do we know he did DNF that that particular round of the challenge, Mallorca? Do we know where he DNF'd? I mean, he must have been in the car. No, um, unfortunately, they were A, so rapid riding those races, B, the weather was so bad that we only saw about 30 to 40 kilometres of, of each race. So I guess it was before the end. Well, you can tell us more about the Challenge Mallorca in just a minute, but we'll introduce our second guest, also joining us today from a secret bunker in the United Kingdom, secret only because it's precise location, Watford, not Watford, what and where is Watford anyway, is as big a mystery as the origin of his nickname... He has seen off Valverde and Nibali and in true contrarian fashion reacted to Thibaut Pino and Peter Sanger's retirement announcements by declaring that he is making a comeback. He's fresh off the plane from Marseille where he visited the only velodrome that I will probably ever be interested attending or whose door I will ever be interested in darkening, i.e. the Stade Velodrome, home to Olympique Marseille Football Club. It is the Lion of Flanders. Lion of Flanders, Lion of the Chilterns. I'm getting ahead of myself. Lionel Burney. Lionel, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Daniel. Yeah, very well. Relegated to the role of guest now. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, a, I'm a guest Things on the changed, Cycling Podcast. Boy. Things have changed, haven't they? Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll gradually nudge them back again over the next few months, I, mean, I think. Lionel, a man who's made more appearances, got more caps on the Cycling Podcast than I've messed up the SIS discount code over the years. <laughs> 
But no, I'm very well, thank you, Daniel. Yes, um, a trip to Marseille to meet uh, our very good friend Francois Thomaso and to make a special episode or a mini series, really, about Marseille and cycling in Marseille and Francois for Friends of the Podcast. That will be out fairly shortly, just working through that at the moment. And yeah, great to be back at an actual bike race, the Grand Prix La Marseillaise, and really a reminder of uh, how different those little early season races are compared to the last race I was at, which was the Tour de France. I mean, it felt, you know, very low-key. Tour de France, 1941. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask. I, I, it wasn't I, that long ago, was it? I, I, I got that, got down there, and, I, and my first question was, you know, how's, how's Bernardino getting on in the cycling these days? And I was stunned <laughs> to find he wasn't, wasn't on the start list. But no, I've been away a little while, as you know, Daniel. I haven't been on the podcast since just after the Tour de France. Uh, so I thought I ought to go to a bike race so that I would have something to talk about. Well, we will talk about that particular bike race at length, I believe, in the second part. But let's crack on, Lionel, with um, the news roundup. Um, I take responsibility for the news roundup these days, although it might be passed back to you in due course. Uh, the first item we recorded last week's episode, just an hour or two before the sad news that Astana, Kazakhstan, the team of our guest, Joe Dombrowski, last week, had lost one of its long-serving members of staff and a bit of an institution on the European road scene, the Masser Umberto Inselvini. Inselvini has suffered a heart attack in Altea, Spain, where part of the team was training. Hence, we'd like to send our condolences to Joe, Astana, and everyone who knew Umberto. Um, another sad bit of news that may have escaped most people's notice is about a rider a lot of listeners will have noticed for his performances in the Vuelta a España over the years. This morning, that is Thursday, Rob, you might have seen this, um, El Mundo featured a long interview with uh, Diego Rubio, about the nightmare that he has endured over the last few months. Uh, Diego Rubio, formerly of BH, or Burgos Biace. Uh, Rubio sustained an open fracture to his left arm in the Tour of Estonia last May. He was taken to hospital and underwent surgery. No one from his, from his team was allowed in the hospital because of COVID restrictions. But Rubio was assured that the arm would have fully healed in a couple of months. On his return to Spain, however, he was re-examined and the doctors told him that the operation had been botched. He would have to undergo more surgery and probably never ride again. Fast forward a few months and Burgos Biaccio have not renewed his contract. He still can't even lift a fork to eat with his left arm. And Rubio says he hasn't given up hope of one day racing again, but he's accepted it's probably impossible. Um, bit of an, an offbeat piece of news but um, a lot of racing this week so thought we'd feature that and Diego Rubio Rob he's someone who you will have commentated on I've certainly spoken to him at the Vuelta over the years a few times um, been pretty prominent in in some long breakaways yeah breakaways were his thing really breakaways let's hope again hope against hope unfortunately it sounds like with the news that's coming out there um, that he can get back but plenty of breakaways certainly at I'd remind, I'd be reminded of Diego Rubin sort of this time of year. Valencia, Algarve, those sorts of races. He was always out there at the start in the last few years, getting in the breaks, picking up intermediate sprint points and things like that. So uh, all the best to Diego Rubin. It's a shocking bit of news, Daniel. Racing now, we'll start with cyclocross very quick this week because believe it or not, we will have a lot of it next week after the World Championships. I can tell you that in the last big warm-up races at the weekend, Wout van Aert won the men's race in Hammer on Saturday and Mathieu van der Poel won the World Cup round in Besançon. On Sunday, on the women's side, Femme van Empel won in Hammer and Puck Peters uh, triumphed in 
Besançon. Um, chaps, you both follow cyclocross more closely than I do. Was this a bit of shadow boxing um, the weekend before the Worlds? They both, well, Van der Poel and Van Aert chose to compete in different places. They're both racing in the Netherlands at the weekend. This is something that they have done in the past, haven't they? They have kind of strategically picked their moments when to go head to head and uh, with a week to go before the world probably just makes sense stay apart and uh, not give too much away uh, before the big one because you know the world championships is you know despite all of their their power and glory on the road they both want to win the rainbow jersey i think the current score is vanderpool four van art three last year tom pidcock won it of course and i mean it's very difficult to call i would say probably van art edges it um in terms of pre-race favorite but uh, it will be decided on the on the on the mud won't it this is a course that's known isn't it it's a known quantity this is in Nogreda, isn't it this weekend this is uh, adri van der poel's own cross so it's in his backyard so a bit of pressure on Mathieu, of course even though that he spent all of his life living over the border just over the border in belgium there's that extra factor in there so can Wout van art go and win in the van der poel's backyard and all that sort of stuff you know the belgian press are like they'll be having the five thousand reporters on site writing column inches about that um while we're on the subject of cyclocross can I just say a very happy retirement to our good mate Steve Chanel because he rode his final cyclocross at the weekend and he's a good colleague of ours in the Discovery Country Box as well he's um, a lovely bloke and he's been a, a very good bike rider so happy retirement Steve who rode his last World Cup race at Besançon at the weekend as I say there'll be a lot of cyclocross next week but this time next week chaps I'll have a PhD in cyclocross I'm going to do so much research um, in the intervening period um, so I don't sound like a complete dunce on next week's podcast um, on the road we'll start with the most recent first, namely, well, latest news in the Saudi tour. At the time of recording, we've had three stages. First two were sprints, one by Dylan Kronewagen on home roads for one of his team's title sponsors, the Alula Resort. The second was won by Bahrain Victorious's battering ram, probably better known for his exploits as an Italian national team pursuiter. Jonathan Milan on Wednesday. Milan nearly took his second victory, but was pipped on the line by the under-23 world time trial champion, Søren Wierenskoll. Milan leads the GC, but I think his teammate Santiago Buitrago is probably a good bet for the final overall. He was second overall last year. The race finishes on Friday in Maraya. Mariah, Mariah, any good on the, I guess that's not pronounced. Um, not like Mariah Carey. <laughs> no, no, all I want for February is the Saudi tour. It's a good, good last couple of stages to the Saudi tour. Um, also this week, we've had the Volta a la Comunidad Valenciana with a pretty stacked field of GC hitters in particular. Vlasov, Landa, Gagan Hart, Carlos Rodriguez, Molema Kemna, among others, in action there. Biniam Gamay took stage one in Altea. More on that later. Meanwhile, parallel to Valencia, the Etoile de Bessege started on Wednesday, down close to where you were at the weekend, Napalm. Um, it features the following, to name but a few of the headline acts. Benoit Cosnefroy, Thibaut Farewell, Torpino, Mads Pedersen, Sivakov, Court, Padun and Paulus. In the first stage, my tip for Milan, San Remo, Arno, De Lee upstage. All of that lot, and particularly Pedersen to win. Uh, chaps, did you see any of that? I mean, I don't know about you, but 
um, catching up, following, staying up to date with all of these races this week. It's a bit like a game of Cluedo. You know, was it was it Arno Delee with the in the Uno X jersey at in Saudi? I don't know. You know, it's it's very difficult to. Last night I watched a whole barrage of racing, caught up on a whole barrage of different things, and um, I've woken up this morning slightly confused about who won where and when. But I can tell you that Arno Dilly did win in Bessage yesterday. The desert in the south of France there is uh, spectacular at this time of year. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's hard for all the commentators to watch all the racing, never mind all the punters at home. Of course, we've got to try and stay on top of it, but there's there's so much on. And it is brilliant. I mean, we're, we're having a bit of a laugh here. It's brilliant to be able to watch all this different racing. But yeah, at this time of year, when you've got racing parallel to other racing parallel to plenty of racing, we could go on all day. There's a lot to watch, isn't there? Arno Delee, though, yesterday, chaps, a bit of a, a bit of a shot across, a shot across the bows, I would suggest, of those who will be hoping that he doesn't win his first Milan San Remo in March because he looked very impressive. Of course, his team will also be able to count, one would think, on Caleb Ewan, but Arno Delee has said that Milan San Remo is a big goal of his. Yeah, I was just going to say this week is the the, the pre entree week isn't it i mean this is uh, in in the restaurant this is when uh, the, the waiter brings you a little kind of uh, i don't know some kind of a mousse bouche and then next week when we get to uh, Ruta del Sol or uh, 10 days away, Ruta del Sol and Algarve, that's kind of the starter. And then you get into the, the more serious races heading towards uh, the real start of the season, Omloop Het Newsblad at the end of the month. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very much early days, isn't it? Between the sort of three, four races that are on at the moment, you've got kind of like one good quality field really i would say in terms in world tour terms i mean so you it's kind of clues and hints rather than uh, you know big indicators i don't think arno de is going to put one stage win of etoile de Bessage down as his kind of you know big card for milan san remo there's going to have to be a bit more to come after that Usually, Lionel, if you're in France, the maitre d' has looked at his watch and, and seen that it's quarter to nine p.m. <laughs> oh, désolé, monsieur, il n'y a pas de place before you even get to the um, amuse bouche. Well, I was going to say, no, it's about, it's about five past six and it's just everyone's having a pastis before, uh, before actually sitting yeah. down to eat anything. We're trudging off towards the with a, with our tails between our legs towards the, the buffalo grill because that's the only option left. Um, chaps, the Vuelta a San Juan finished on Sunday. Was it Sunday? Yes, I think. My with my early vote for the most predictable race denouement of. 2023, namely Superman Lopez taking overall victory after his queen stage win at the Alto Colorado, 2,700 meters above sea level. Second that day, somewhat surprisingly, was Filippo Ganna. Say it was predictable because, well, well, we've talked a lot about Superman in the last few weeks. His sacking by Astana for his involvement in the Operación Ilex doping investigation. His signing for Team Medellín. I mentioned last week that the doctor at the centre of the investigation, Marcos Maynard, passionately defended Lopez in an interview. I don't know, it all sort of pointed towards one conclusion for me, chaps. That was Superman cleaning up in San Juan. Although it was a bit of a surprise to see how, I would say, heartily, unquestioningly, um, he was celebrated in some quarters of the South American media. I don't know if you chaps saw any of that. I mean, it was as though nothing had ever happened. He was still riding for a World Tour team. And um, yeah, he was he was fated, celebrated, venerated um, as the way or in the way that you would expect a man called Superman would be. 
no hint of, of anything amiss there. I should also say, in light of our discussion last week about Nairo Quintana, the Colombian media will have been heartened by a good performance by Egan Bernal in that mountain state at Alto Colorado, where he was fourth. They will have been slightly concerned, on the other hand, by Bernal abandoning the race the following day with lingering pain in his left knee after a crash earlier in the week. Ineos Grenadiers said that the injury should not affect Bernal's race programme over the coming weeks. Chaps, um, did you catch much of San Juan? Any thoughts on Superman and Egan Bernal? Well, on Lopez, I mean, the the, the South American um, press and, and fans, I guess, will, will obviously be disappointed in coming weeks and months because what sort of race programme is he going to have with Medellin? I mean, looking ahead, it looks like they've got an invite to the International Tour of Roads in March, but he's not going to get a, a, a high-profile race programme. So he's kind of following the... I mean, it's, it's ironic in a way, isn't it? Um, one of his teammates is Oscar Sevilla, 46. So maybe, um, you know, there's a there's a... There's something there, kind of uh, celebrating past glories together. But uh, the the big question will be whether or not uh, at the end of this season or at some point, even mid-season, whether um, Lopez is rehabilitated to the point where he does make a return and is able to ride World Tour races. Because somebody would have a look at him and, and perhaps have a look at the case and the, uh, and the situation and undoubtedly would, would take a risk on that. Um, at the earliest opportunity, there might be somebody that would that would go for him. I should say that, I mean, one thing that could clear his name would be a satisfactory conclusion of Operacion Ilex. Um, I should say that yesterday, Vicente Belda and his son, who are both, well, they are under investigation. Um, they were supposed to give evidence yesterday and their court hearing was postponed because of industrial action in Spain. Um, Superman Lopez, I should say, is not formally under investigation. He is only... Um, been named as a witness so far. Um, should also add, finally, that the last two, two stages in San Juan were won by the 27-year-old Aussie Sam Wellsford of DSM. His will be a new name for some, um, not those who follow track cycling assiduously. But he certainly beat some of the most decorated names in the sprint jet set in Argentina. Um, he only arrived in the World Tour last year taking his sole win of his rookie season at the Tour of Turkey in April, shortly after finishing third in Skelder Price. His double at the weekend rounded off an excellent few days for DSM, with the young German Marius Meyerhofer also taking Cadell Evans. The Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, and more about both of these those fine young fellows in part three later in the podcast. That concludes, chaps, the news round up. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. There's lots of interesting research being done on how the body responds to eating certain types of food, but not only the types of food, but the time that you eat them. And uh, Super Sapiens can help you to learn in real time how your body responds to the food that you eat. I mean, there's lots of things, kind of the the way we eat anyway, um, kind of the body, I guess, um, regulates and dictates 
the appetite, but uh, eating fiber and fat and protein before carbohydrate can reduce the glucose rushes you experience after a meal. So salad first, then meat, if you're a meat eater, then pasta or potatoes, I guess. Um, The key to regulating your glucose levels uh, when basically preparing for an event or uh, on the day of an event is to keep them as stable as you can. Makes sense, doesn't it? Avoid the boom and bust of glucose rushes and crashes. And with the Super Sapiens app, you can see exactly what your body's doing. And a lot of this reminds me of things that we do anyway. I mean, Rob, our very good friend, Sean Kelly, to this day still takes the the doughy soft center out of a bread roll when he eats his uh, eats his meal doesn't he because his old sports director director of sportif sorry daniel jean de gribaldi back in the 70s you know chastised him for eating the the soft doughy uh, center of his bread roll because it would slow him down and riders back then they would always have a good salad as a starter Another thing, vinaigrette can help to blunt the glucose rushes as well. This is all stuff that I've been learning from the supersapiens.com website. And if you want to unlock your potential this year, go to supersapiens.com to find out more. This reminds me, Rob, I mentioned earlier the Col d'Embleda, which is your local, which is your home climb in Mallorca, just outside Soya. And did you know the Bleda is um, beetroot in Catalan? Didn't know that. I thought, I thought it was a nickname. This is, this is, this is very tenuously related, because I was just thinking about the performance-enhancing qualities of beetroot, um, which are quite well documented, and Lionel there talking about what might seem like old wives' tales about performance, um, but actually carry some substance. Beetroot does really work and it has, has been demonstrated to do so but anyway yeah the Col d'Embleda is the beetroot climb that's incredible um, I thought it was just named after the big posh house at the top that's called Sombleda but um, the thing is I, I would I go up so slowly on that climb whether I'm walking running or cycling that I would notice if there were beetroot there and uh, I've not seen any but I'll ask around well let's talk about another climb um, let's talk about the Col de la Gineste which is the climb that overlooks Marseille Lionel, you were there at the weekend. You saw Nielsen Paulus take the GP La Marseillaise a couple of years ago. Everyone had sort of cottoned on to this so-called curse of the uh, GP Marseillaise. It was said that whoever won that race would be cursed for the rest of the season. I think everyone's kind of gone beyond that. I didn't um, notice too many people talking about that this weekend. It's kind of been debunked. But Paulus did win the first race of the season, his first race of the season, as I said, Lionel, you were there. How was your trip, first of all? Well, it was a great trip. Um, partly it was to go and see Francois Thomaso and say thank you to him for his incredible stint on the cycling podcast. He's obviously covered the tour for us every year since 2017. Marseille is his hometown. Very proud of it, too. And it has a certain reputation in France, doesn't it? The second biggest city in France. Uh, they see themselves as very different to the, the posh Parisians up north. Um, Marseille is, a, is a, a streetwise city, I guess you would say. Um, but it has... Uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's beautiful. And, and the, the, the thing about it was on my previous trips, you know, I've been slightly intimidated, Daniel, as you know, I've, I find most things intimidating. But as you come into Marseille, the thing that really hits you is just how vast it is. It covers a, it stretches inland, you know, it's not even really hemmed in by the hills. It kind of seems to spill up and over onto the hills. Um, 
but it's a it's a big city lots of traffic it's one of those places that if you don't know where you're going you tend to stick to the kind of the the well-trodden touristy parts down in the old port yeah it's one of those cities that i think you can have very different experiences in marseille mm. depending on which part you see and how you enter the city which you know i think the comparison has often been made between naples liverpool and marseille they have a lot of things in common they're all ports famous football teams and famous for their, for their music as well i've never been to liverpool but i've been to naples i think you can't go to naples without escaping that sense of it being naples everywhere you look you feel as though you are in naples whereas as i say in marseille i've had lots of very very different and contrasting experiences you're almost spoiling the Friends of the Podcast series here because Francois talks about this um, really, you know, evocatively, really. Just uh, you turn the corner and suddenly you're in a very different part of, of Marseille. And uh, yeah, I got to see a bit of that. And at the end, I said, well, thank you, Francois, for showing me around Marseille. And he sort of shrugged and said, well, you've only seen about a tenth of it, which, you know, in a, in a long weekend, uh, probably true. But yeah, we were there for the race, the race itself, the Grand Prix La Marseillaise. It used to be called uh, the Grand Prix d'Ouverture, literally the the opener uh, race that's run still by the local newspaper as we know you know local newspapers are uh, struggling the world over but they're still putting on the race they're very proud of it it's the opening race of the coupe de france the season-long one-day race series they they say it's the first race of the international season i didn't have the heart to tell them that they've been racing in australia and uh, argentina for a couple of weeks so hang on, you don't you don't have the heart to tell the Australians the Tour Down Under is only a preseason friendly, oh, and you don't have the and you don't have the heart the heart to tell the master here that theirs is only a, well theirs is a kind of postseason or post preseason friendly. I, I only say it when I think they're not listening. So on on the podcast, okay. oh, hang on, just to correct that, I mean the Tour Down Under has completely over outgrown that. Um, you know that's a that's a reputation from sort of eight ten years ago. I mean the that the the race is uh, well as we saw. You know it, it's a it's a level, two levels, multiple levels above in terms of, uh, well, I mean, it's a world tour race, isn't it? It's a kind of a week-long grand tour in, in everything. Rob, can you tell that one of our sponsors now, Map Clothing, ah. is Australian? <laughs> <laughs> never, never. No. But ju- just to back up Lionel's point, I'm looking at the top 30 in, um, in Marseille the other day, and I have to say as well, you know, I did spare a thought for Nielsen Powers. I was thinking, oh, no, he sounds like a nice guy. That's his results room for a year now with the um, the curse <laughs> of the Grand Prix de Marseille. But, yeah, that, that is something that does seem to have disappeared in the last few years. But I'm looking at the names down here, and with plenty of respect to the names, they're not the names that you would see or the same level of names that you would see in the top 30 in uh, Tour Down Under. So it does back up Lionel's point there completely. These early season races, I mean, remember, uh, I'm, I'm a bit older than you two chaps, but when I first got into cycling, the south of France and the south of Italy and Sicily and, and obviously the south of Spain were the battlegrounds of the early season. And uh, that whole stretch of coastline really uh, from Marseille into Ligurian coast in Italy held multiple races through February it really was the, sort of the, the pre-season training venue and those races were kind of easy introduction to the season that has changed a little bit but something that remains is that the the Grand Prix La Marseille still has that really kind of uh, local race character of some of the other races that have, that have bitten the dust down there the classic Aribo which used to start outside the Haribo factory the classic Aribo I should well I, I've 
told this story, I'm sure, on the podcast before, but it's also the reason why I haven't touched a Haribo since because that day, I think I went to the 2002 Classic Haribo and the only thing on offer all day to eat was Haribo. Sounds like a dream to me. A lot of them and I haven't touched one since. The devil's confectionery. Anyway, it was a bit of a throwback, really. It's a long while since I've been to one of those small races and my first impression was just how... Um, how small it felt, uh, you know, and how much it relies, events like this rely on volunteers. I mean, we go to the Tour de France and, um, you know, everything is run pretty immaculately, huge crowds. Uh, this was, had a much smaller feel, you know, the, the, the roads are being marshaled by volunteers who are armed with nothing but a, a, a gilet jaune. We were driving on the route de Crete. We weren't actually on the jeunesse because we couldn't have got to the jeunesse and then get to the finish. So I was traveling with Simon Gill, the photographer, and Francois, of course, as well. And so we were driving up the route de Crete uh, in the wrong direction, so against the race route direction, 15 minutes before the race was due through. The roads were completely open, you know, rolling road closure. And, um, yeah, it was just a... It took me back to my roots, really, of covering domestic races in in the UK. And not to take away from the strength of the field, because you can only beat what's in front of you, but Nielsen Paulus was, uh, you know, well, he executed it very well. EF, Education, Easy Post, clearly had a a well-defined plan. They had Marijn Vandenberg as the kind of the the sprinter sitting in the group that could just uh, polish it off if it didn't work out for Paulus. Vandenberg did win the sprint for 11th place, so they got it absolutely spot on. And, and Paulus, he chose the place to attack. It was really went away on, on a descent, really. And, and then it was, uh, well, TJ Van Garderen, who was in the team car, put it down to a combination of just picking the right moment, the, the bike and the equipment giving them a bit of an aerodynamic edge. I mean, they all say that, don't they? But also the fact that the headwind, which they all expected to bring it all back together for a sprint, uh, wasn't as strong on the plateau. It certainly wasn't favourable, but it gave uh, Paulus um, more of a chance than he might have had. Uh, because in the morning, everyone was talking about it being a, an absolute shoe-in for Arno Delis uh, on his march towards Milan San Remo glory. And uh, looking at the start list, I couldn't really disagree with that. But it didn't go that way. The brake stayed away. And Paulus finished, what, a minute and 15 seconds ahead of the Ironman, Valentin Ferron of Total Energies. And uh, yeah, very nice weekend. And we enjoyed the pastis and the bouillabaisse. And we discover... Uh, Francois' history with Marseille and that will, as I say, be in a Friends of the Podcast special shortly. Just a couple of things that stood out for me, Lionel, in this similar sort of nostalgic vein. This is probably the only cycling podcast where listeners will hear us or hear me talk about light quality. Um, Always love that sort of glassy late afternoon light in those early season French races brings back a lot of memories for me of the sort of double page spreads in pro cycling and cycle sport those first pictures you would see um, first pictures of the season very evocative and um, the sort of sun setting over the Calanque which is the sort of headlands above Marseille. Also, that run into Marseille always makes me think of the very, very famous stage um, of the 1971 Tour de France when I wasn't alive. But it's one of the most famous stages in Tour de France history when Eddie Merckx went on the attack after Louis Ocaña had taken him to the cleaners a couple of days earlier. um, Eddie Merckx 
just went from the gun pretty much um, on the stage into Marseille and arrived in Marseille so early that nothing had been set up. The TV cameras hadn't been switched on yet. And the mayor of Marseille, well, he threw a bit of a tantrum, so much so that the tour didn't go back to Marseille for a couple of decades. I'm pretty sure the, the course, the, the road into Marseille, they did that day in 1971. It's the same one they do in the GP uh, Marseilles. And on a more technical level, we mentioned Larry, lucky Larry Warbass a couple of weeks ago, mentioned Lenny Martinez, the teenager um, son of Miguel Martinez, former mountain bike Olympic gold medalist and world champion, I think. Was it and grandson, grandson of Mariano uh, Martinez, a yes. mountain winner back in the 70s. Yes, Larry mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, said that of the up-and-coming French generation, he is one of the men most likely to end the French drought in the Tour de France. Well, he was certainly riding very well at the weekend, wasn't he? Um, he was in that group from which Nielsen Paulus attacked. Yeah, he was eighth. Friends of the podcast can listen to the full story of the 1971 Tour de France into Marseille. They can pay for the privilege and hear Francois talk about it. There's a lot more to it. It all links into the kind of the the, the, the communist links to the newspaper itself. Oh, it's fascinating stuff. I learned so much about Marseille from Francois. Uh, but the race itself, Nielsen Paulus, I gather a, a, a spy tells me that he just trained a little bit less this winter than he usually would. Just a few kilometres less over the winter, maybe five or We've ten kilometres less. We've all tried that method. But, but um, he <laughs> always worked. Went, went from the training camp, the team training camp in Mallorca, did a couple of the, um, the one-day Mallorca races at the stage race that's not a stage race, and then went to France, uh, pulled off that victory, and has his eyes on, uh, well, the Ardennes Classics, Liège, Bastogne-Liège in particular, where last year he was eighth. And I suppose this was a kind of a mini version of the way he won the San Sebastian Classic, wasn't it? I mean, we, we know what a, um, what a classy rider he is. And uh, perhaps this hints, maybe he'll reverse the curse this spring. The, the curse of La Marseillaise will be reversed. Chaps, part three now. And I intended, I intend for us to talk about two teams that have had a cracking start. And as we said, it is very much the amuse-bouche of the season, but they've had a cracking start of the season. Rob, one thing I forgot in the news roundup, um, I got lost in all the whimsical chat about beetroots. I was going to actually ask you to summarise the Challenge Mallorca um, because one of these teams was very prominent there. Um, can you tell us, can you remember who won the individual rounds? Have you got this written down somewhere? It's etched in my memory. It's stuck in my memory as well as the, the cold and snow that seeped through to my bones over the last week. Zero degrees here this morning, and it was a group of riders who were pretty good in the bad weather who did really well. Um, opening it up in Trofeo Calvia, just down the road from Magaluf, the big sort of Club 18 to 30s resort and all that sort of stuff, out of season. The strip don't, wasn't open. Don't offend anyone, <laughs> Rob. Don't offend anyone, Rob. A couple of weeks ago when we mentioned Benidorm, you got yourself in a bit of trouble. Well, yeah, I mean, we won't go there, but maybe that's a discussion for another day as to uh, where all that might come from. Rui Costa. First day with his new team, wanting to emulate Alexander Christoph, who'd been to Antomarche and taken away a sort of resurgence, refound himself, winning some big races. He did the same, and it only took him a single day. He won Trofeo Calviano, the biggest of races, but it was the first victory for two and a half years for the former Portuguese world champion. 
well, the Portuguese former world champion. I gather he's still Portuguese. Um, Rui Costa, he won on day one. Um, a day later, it was Marijn van den Berg. First pro win for EF Education. Easy post in Alcudi on what was a, a bit of a dangerous finish with that corner about 50 metres from the finish line. Following that, two days back-to-back -back in the snow, sleet, wind and rain. Kobe Hosens, two bin wins in 48 hours. Um, he's a young man who'd never won a bike race before taking those victories in Puyensa and Yoseta. But again, he was part of the Antemarche team. Antemarche, who had deep previous, had also had a podium with Biniam Girmay. So what a record they have. Three wins out of five days in Mallorca. And on the final day, it was a win for Ethan Vernon in the traditional sprint on the seafront in Palma. Again, with a bit of a questionable finish with that 180-degree turn, 500 metres from the finish line. Well, Rob, you mentioned that fantastic string of results, series of results for Antemarche Circus Wanty as they're called this year. Those results in particular put them on top of the world rankings. On social media, they hailed, they celebrated, um, topping the world rankings for the first time well, in the team's history. And they talked about the team's history going back to 1974. Maybe we'll discuss exactly how you trace the team's lineage back to 1974 in a minute. But they're certainly one team that was very prominent at the weekend. Another was DSM, as already mentioned in the Vuelta San Juan. They had Sam Wells for their Australian sprinter, winning two stages in a stacked field of sprinters. And they also had Marius Meyerhofer winning the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Race. So two teams that are not necessarily in the top tier or among the, 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 the mega bucks behind the VIP cordon or in the same way that... Um, UAE and Jumbo Visma and Ineos Grenadiers are smaller budgets, um, had more modest results in recent years, but they seem to be on the up. Let's talk for a minute about DSM as well. And well, let's talk about those two riders who were very successful at the weekend, Meyer Hofer and Sam Wel Wellsford, with... The sprint coach at DSM, Roy Curvers, a guy who rode for DSM for many years, as I said, is now part of the staff. I spoke to him yesterday about Sam Wellsford and Maurice Meyerhofer. Yeah, we recruited Sam as being one of the fastest riders on the track. And yeah, we just uh, dropped him a message if he was uh, interested in exploring his possibilities on the road after the Olympics of, uh, uh, of two years ago. So that's basically what we did, and we knew it would be yeah, a long way. So yeah, last year we invested a lot in um, yeah, getting him trained on uh, on endurance. And last year it was with up, ups and downs. He had some good results, but the, yeah, he just wasn't uh, wasn't consistent, which you actually also cannot really expect from a guy with um, yeah, with his background. So last year we already had um, yeah, had a positive feeling. And uh, this winter, we uh, we basically continued that process. It took it took a little bit convincing uh, to convince him to go the Tour of San Juan instead of Tour Dananda. Of course, there uh, that's where his heart is would be his home mm. race. As soon as he found out about uh, the day schedule in uh, Argentina, he, uh, yeah, he saw the opportunities and was motivated again. And, uh, it's it's great uh, to see that he was able to beat um, all these fast guys. Uh, already once and uh, doing that again the day after and yeah, that's uh, that's also beyond expectations but on the other hand also yeah, something we hoped and we actually also knew uh, uh, he would be able to uh, one day. Roy so you talked about his endurance that was something that needed 
to be worked on, um, obviously. What other difficulties did he have last year? Because as you say, he did have some really good results, even in a race like Skelder Price, difficult to move up and down the bunch um, because, you know, you might look at San Juan and think, okay, big roads, and that's a, a relatively sort of simple race from that point of view, from the technical point of view. But how, how was mm-hmm. it sort of technically? Uh, actually, maybe maybe even too good, but it but it caused some trouble. Like in uh, yeah, obviously on the track you uh, you don't have any brakes. Um, yeah, last year I think he had also some uh, some crashes because he yeah it's not in his uh, first reaction to brake. Also in uh, in moments that it's maybe not necessary to uh, to go through all. So yeah, also in that he needed some adaptation time. I don't see any trouble uh, with his bike handling skills at the moment anymore. He has um. Uh, a special kind of sprint yeah, from the track. So also his, uh, his seated power is uh, incredibly high. His, uh, what makes him special is I think he can dig really deep with a lot of sprinters. It's defining how long they can keep standing on the pedals. He can uh, continue his, his effort uh, while sitting. Yeah, that gives him just an extra, yeah, an extra weapon in the sprint. So what do his next few months look like in terms of program and objectives for this year? His first objective is going to be UAE. He will be, uh, again, competing against the, the, the fastest guys in the world. We really made a good block for him uh, with these two races yeah, to have uh, real opportunities also against uh, the really fast guys. Then he will do a, a line in Belgium with um, yeah, some smaller one-day Belgium races, which uh, are most likely also uh, ending up in a sprint. So yeah, that's basically his, uh, his program for the upcoming uh, two months. So you had another victory at the weekend for another fast rider in Australia, uh, Marius Meyerhofer. Now his story's a bit different in the sense that he had an awful last year, didn't he, with illness and injury. I mean, I don't think he finished the race before May because he was just always having problems. But are you working with him as well, Roy? I basically was his uh, personal coach for for the last three years. This year we changed that. So you you were the bad bad luck charm. Uh, maybe it was me, and uh, hopefully it was me, because uh, that would mean that, yeah, that it goes on a straight line from uh, from this uh, race. I'm really willing to put all that blame on me. But um, yeah, as you said, Marius, not only last year it was uh, it was bad luck, but also yeah, basically the years before. Uh, he was came in uh, in our team as a really talented junior, finished second uh, behind Evenepoel on the on the world. 2018 was that. Yeah, Marius was uh, was starting good in his under 23 years, but. Uh, in the first year, he already got injured on his knee, and that took uh, yeah, took almost a year of injury. And when he was finally ready to race, it uh, was the COVID year. So, in uh, in his second year, in the 23, he, um, he also didn't wasn't able to show uh, so much. In his third year, he uh, yeah, he had a good uh, good winter again, and yeah, then he also had uh, had some nice results, which uh, yeah, obviously also showed that he was ready for the step up. And yeah, last year it was um, yeah due to sickness and illness uh, yeah that he was in the beginning of the year uh, yeah not competing at all actually. But yeah, we kept we kept believing in my possibilities and also yeah the, the the last part of the year that yeah that was really giving the hope and you could really see him improve uh, week by week. Yeah, we we saw also with how he developed uh, yeah from from the power fast and from the training what he was doing that when he would have a good winter that he would make another step. We switched a little bit um, from uh, from aiming point with Marius, where you know, we think he's not a pure sprinter. He's more the, the rider type that you need to be for winning a uh, Cadell's race. So he's more like of a, um, yeah, a guy who can can survive sometimes and then still is fast. 
So yeah, we also would like to use them in the, more in that way. So, chaps, huge success already for Intermarché and DSM. One swallow or two swallows or three swallows does not make a summer, a spring or even a sort of end of winter. Very early days, but we've talked in recent years. We talked last week with Larry and Joe Dombrowski about the importance of momentum early in the season and the sort of disproportionate importance that these early victories take on also in people's minds in the sort of wider consciousness. But I thought it'd be interesting just to dwell for a moment and reflect on these two teams and they're very different approaches um, DSM have over the past few years leaned further and further into well this 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 identity that they've created for themselves of being a great place for young riders um, they've got more young riders than ever they've got 22 riders in their squad on their roster who are 25 or under only five riders over the age of 25 um, Marche are at the other or have been at the other end of the spectrum. They've had a lot of success over the last few years recruiting riders who have been discarded, who have been considered over the hill, too old. Um, Rob, you mentioned Rui Costa. I suppose um, he could fit into that category. He's joined the team this year. Alexander Kristoff has been there. Uh, he was pretty successful. Last year, they've had others like Ryan Taramai. People have talked about a Moneyball model. Um, Moneyball, of course, the book written by Michael Lewis about the Oakland Athletics baseball team and Billy Bean, the mastermind behind their strategy of, again, um, in some cases, well, really looking hard at what what is called in baseball saber metrics, the statistics of baseball, looking where they could get an edge, um, things that other teams have missed, but also resuscitating, reviving, as we said last week, upcycling the careers of riders who are judged to be past their best. So two very, very conflicting, contrasting approaches and we'll talk in a minute maybe about how those two sort of images are maybe a little bit a little bit sort of caricatured and how there's more than meets the eye Um, however just talk to me a bit both of you chaps about what you um, take from these two good starts for DSM and Antal Marché. I'll start with Antoine Marché because, of course, when they came on the scene, remember, they were Wanty Gobert, weren't they? And, do you know, until 18 months ago, they'd only ever won one World Tour race. <laughs> one race at the very top level. It was a pretty special one. It was the Amstel Gold Race. And I guess you can trace the origin of this upcycling of riders, sort of rebirth of careers back to there, because it was Enrico Gasparotto, who we all thought was probably on his way out of professional cycling at that time on a bit of a downward spiral, hadn't won in a while, back at a race that he loved, and he took the victory in quite sensational style. After that, in the last couple of years, they've gone on to sign the likes of Pozzo Vivo, who's done well for them in the Giro d'Italia, Christoph last year notably. But to touch on your point, Daniel, there about the fact that it might be a bit of a caricature, they've also developed riders of their own. Loic Vlieger has come through and done particularly well in the Belgian domestic scene. You've got Biniam Girmay. Okay, he was spotted riding already for the Eritrean national team. I think we sort of knew he was going to be on the way to being a bit of a world beater when he was ripping it up in the under-23s and riding for, I think, with Delco for half a season down in the south of France as well. But they've also had 
the likes of Guillaume Martin coming through their ranks and riding pretty well as well. So there has been a bit of a balance there, but they're on the top now. And I guess that's the opposite trajectory to DSM because DSM, they were, what were they, somewhere, giant Alpacine, all that sort of stuff. And they sort of arrived and they were winning things left, right and centre, weren't they? The Degenkolb, Kittel, then Dumoulin. They won a grand tour with the latter at the Giro d'Italia. But I think maybe finance possibly caught up with them a little bit. Um, having out of necessity more than anything to, to develop riders and, and go away through like that. And they, I think, sort of started this recent trend of giving riders from the development team a real go in the in the, the first team, if you like, to use the football analogy. Yeah, I mean, DSM have not had a massive amount of success in the last two years. They had that great season in 2020, the COVID year, where they had an unbelievable Tour de France with Sue Crow Anderson and Mark Hirschi, but they've not been so successful the last couple of years. One thing that struck me, has occurred to me, is that they have had their thunder stolen a little bit by this wider interest in very very young riders they have no longer got the pick of the crop as as far as sort of giving 19 and 20 year olds a go in the world tour pretty much every team is doing that now so it's probably become a little bit more difficult for dsm to pluck the best talent but they are developing their own talent aren't they because four of the riders that have joined the team this year the world tour team that is have come from the development team you know that's becoming quite a well-worn path now uh, of Antomarche and DSM, of all the World Tour teams, they are two of the three that have had the most kind of churn, most turnover of riders this winter. Uh, Antomarche, the most number of ins and outs over the winter, 11 new riders coming in, 12 leaving. Jayco are the other one, 10 in, 10 out, and DSM, 9 in, 9 out. And I think that says something that, that does feel like there's a the beginning of a new cycle. And I do wonder whether that is in some way linked to the fact that we are also... This, this strange promotion and relegation system that the UCI has created, the, the three-year cycle where at the end, you know, the teams sitting in the, the wrong seats uh, get ejected. <laughs> Just a little note of caution, because I, I went into the weekend thinking, well, maybe some teams, you know, EF Education, Easy Post being one, maybe they're keen to steal a march get some points on the board you know make an early impression at the beginning of this cycle and just try and make sure they keep their noses out of the water i mean three years is a really long time to 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 play the relegation game the teams aren't looking at at that at the moment nevertheless as you say you know victory uh, does spawn victory i guess but it's worth bearing in mind that at the start of the 2021 season uh, Lotto Sudal were top of the table they were the uh, team leading the world rankings and they ended up getting relegated at the end of last season so I mean Antomarche you know that it, it strikes me a little bit of the you know in a in a football season when the, the sort of the, you know one of the minnows is on top after a couple of games don't say Arsenal and, and then then one of the big clubs like it's 20 games <laughs> in already and wow. then one of the big clubs like Manchester City or Tottenham Hotspur come through no no <laughs> one, oh, one of the no 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 oh, sorry sorry <laughs> no, but, but, but cut that <laughs> um I think the difference, be- I mean, Anton Marche, you know, really is a vehicle for Binium Gamay, isn't it? I mean, he has star quality and Daniel talking of Milan San Remo, I mean, he would be my, I know we're, you know, six, seven weeks away, but he would be my early pick for Milan San Remo, uh, you know, talent, uh, just a very, very fast sprinter who can climb. And the rest looks like the sorts of riders that can, well, you know, they've added some some uh, experience quality mike turnison i mean that i 
that looks like a great signing because he was getting a little bit lost at Jumbo Visma and now can uh, come to Antomarche and, you know, he's got much more room to spread his wings. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, story, that team, because, you know, you go back two or three years where they, they bought the CCC team's licence at the end of 2020, sort of found themselves in the World Tour. And by all accounts, back then, I mean, they had one coach, one physiologist. They weren't really doing any altitude camps. The sort of emblematic figure of the team was... This um, old Belgian direct sportive Hilaire van der Schuren, who, by his own admission, is a bit of a dinosaur. He's over 70 now. He can no longer drive in races. Um, a sort of self-styled, self-embraced caricature. He lives between the Mur de Gramont, the um, Herausberg, and the Mur van Herausberg, and, and the Bosberg. And he has some 20 cows in his back garden. And he, well, they're for his own consumption. Apparently, he cuts um veganuary is over so vegans don't have to cover their ears but yeah this is purely for his own consumption he gives so he takes a quarter of the cow for himself every year and gives three quarters to his neighbors that's what he says and there are all sorts of stories about him again someone who unashamedly is kind of stuck in the 20 20 20th century the last century was wasn't it there was a story jan offredo the french rider um, rode for Wanty Group Goubert, what, that's what it was called then, a couple of years ago at the Tour de France. And he told the story of Hilaire van der Schuren sending all of the riders a text message at the Tour de France the day before, or a few hours um, before the, the start of the rest day. And he signed off with just one thing, no women are allowed in the rooms. Again, sort of harking back to probably the, the era when Hilaire van der Schuren earned his spurs as a direct sportif in the kind of 70s under Loma Driessen's, um, Eddie Van, I'm sorry, Eddie Merckx's historic, famous direct sportif. But so you've got him, but then you've also got um, Larry, well, Joe Dombrowski last week talked about the the, I think he called it the lovely ambiance that's said to reign at um, Antel Marche now. But also, they have really developed from the point of view of sports science. Joe mentioned Ike Visbeck, who came on board from what was Sunweb, what was now DSM. And he has really dragged the team into the 21st century. To all intents and purposes, in terms of sports science, in terms of recruitment and so on and so forth. He doesn't always see eye to eye with Hilaire van der Schuren, but he's brought a lot of the things that were very successful at DSM, um, Sunweb, which has always been a team that's been seen as, well, belonging to the, the sort of the vanguard as far as those things are concerned. But talking of caricatured images and going back to DSM for a second, guys, I mean, one thing that sort of stuck with the image of that team has been, well, what Brian Nygaard, uh, the, the great Dane, our attack dog on the cycling podcast, he's referred to as a sort of style of management that really belongs, well, where I am now in East Germany, um, the former East Germany, this sort of hyper-controlling this is what we've heard about DSM or this is what's been speculated about this um, desire on the part of the management, need on the part of the management to have everything under control for riders to be reporting back constantly. They have to sort of fill in forms about how they're feeling, what they've done every evening and so on and so forth. I suppose critics have called a bit of an infantilization of their riders. The same critics have suggested that this is the reason why a lot of riders have broken their contracts with DSM over the years. Marcel Kittel left for the end of his contract, Tom Dumoulin, Ilan van Wilder, more recently Teish Benut, 
Mark Hirschi, there have been there have been others and there have been other rumours about riders wanting to do just that. Let's go back to Roy Curvers, who I said earlier on has been at the team really since its inception um, throughout the history of what is now DSM. And I asked him about this and how fair it is and how come, well, he obviously believes the method works because he is still a part of the organisation after all those years. You've been in this team for a long time as a rider as well. And it's a team that when things are going well, everyone says, wow, their method is amazing. You know, it's a different method from every other team in the World Tour. And you get a big round of applause. When things are going badly, everyone says, this team, they haven't understood anything about the way to manage riders. These things we hear about riders having to write everything down and so on and so forth. And as I say, it's very different. That's what we hear from other teams. Why Why do you keep believing in it? Why do you think it, it is still a, a good process and a good yeah, way of working? On, on one side, I I think we are now, um, we are not so much different than uh, than most of the others, or then at least than, uh, than a lot of others who do it, who do it quite similar. I wouldn't say that we are really, uh, really strange or really, uh, really that much different. No? No. I think when we, what is our success, that's maybe all a little bit our trap also as well. What we really want is cooperation and cooperate with the riders. And at one side, they profit from that because they uh, get all the support from um, yeah, from all experts and everybody in the team. The thing we ask in return is to for them to be open and honest to each other, uh, to us, about what they really believe in, what they really think. And as long as they are they are like that, it's working. But it's not always easy because, yeah, with cooperating means also you have to keep talking about how it's going yeah keep that uh, communication line uh, there when it's when it all goes good and when it all goes uh, according plan that, that's nice but yeah when when you don't have the feeling anymore that it's going good yeah then we are also the team that yeah won't let you stand aside we will ask questions we will try to motivate you to yeah to, to keep on doing it in the way that we know is right but yeah if you are open and honest and feel uh, like that's not uh, not working or you don't want it anymore then we are also not a team that uh, wants to hold the rider on the contract and yeah, that's maybe that situation that happened a lot yeah uh, where maybe other teams uh, are more keen on uh, yeah then okay then we keep continuing with this rider we maybe know that yeah that he will leave uh, in his next contract negotiation uh, period yeah. but until then we we try to squeeze out uh, the most of it and yeah because we are a team that yeah needs to um yeah maybe our maybe yeah our, our key success factor is that we make riders better and uh, we make young riders better and mm. In, in that kind of environment, um, a rider who is done with our way of working yeah, is more damaging to those young riders than when he would have been in the team where it's yeah where the average age is 25 plus, for example, yeah. where you all have yeah well-seasoned pros who know okay this is what happens. Uh, I don't have to look up to him. He's done here. I think those things that happen in every team, only in our team because we are so young, that's influencing a lot. So that's also why we try to push or try to avoid coming into that situation. I think we are not a strange team. We are just <laughs> a team that makes appointments with riders. And yeah, I raised my whole career here, and I was yeah. I'm also not a not a strange guy. I think, <laughs> and I also was not always agreeing with the team. But yeah. the thing that I knew is okay. When I want something different, I have to be open and honest and speak about it with the right people at the right moment. Then I never had any any problem. But yeah. 
Yeah, you have to be honest to yourself. What can you do? What can you, what, 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 what not? Rob Hatch, what should we take from that? Roy Curvis saying they're not that different anymore. Uh, I mean, as I put it to Roy there, it's one of, it is very easy to caricature this team. And, you know, we as journalists and storytellers, we love to paint in very broad brushstrokes. And if this team is very successful, as they have had extremely successful seasons in the past, we hail their method and we say, look, um, these guys are ahead of the game. They are introducing management techniques, motivational techniques that others have not cottoned on to yet, and we applaud them. When things go badly or slightly less well, and as I said, over the last couple of years, they have not been prolific winners we suggest that this method needs to be revised and we also look, as I said earlier, at the number of riders who have sought to leave the team. Just one thing I'll add is an interesting point made by Roy Curvers there was how there is potential in this team for someone to poison the dressing room, i.e. older riders who decide that they are past this method of coaching, this method of management, to heavily influence the young riders. And you can almost imagine that happening. You can imagine almost being on the team bus and seeing one of the older, more experienced riders kind of rolling their eyes at having to fill in another form. This could create problems, couldn't it? Yeah, you can understand where the rules have come from. You can understand why they continue to impose you know, the, the processes, the rules, all sorts of things. Things that, let's say, might seem restrictive to people who are used to operating with freedom and doing things that they feel work for them in, in their own fashion. You know, just imagine whatever job you do, somebody come in and say, no, okay, you've been doing it well, you've been winning, but you've got to do it this way. Why? Well, you've got to do it this way. Um, if you've been around for a while, of course you're going to get a bit fed up with it. And, and it's only natural to, to maybe sort of um, pass on that feeling, spread it through the team, through... a what effectively, hopefully for people working, there's a bunch of friends doing something they love together. And, you know, something like being a professional athlete should be fun, shouldn't it? It's a privilege as well as something that, that brings you success. But then again, you look at the professional side, they are methods that have won them, as I said before, grand tours, stages in the Tour de France, a lot of things. Um, you can understand why they're there. But again, if you've been around in the sport for a while, you can also understand why they might seem restrictive. But then there's other people working there, really enthusiastic, hardworking people as well. I'm thinking of Matt Winston, who's brought a really aggressive racing uh, mentality to the sports director's position there. So things do work. You know, people who are lighthearted and fun and they do, they do get on and, and they, they manage to do their jobs well. Um, Roman Bardet, I think a lot of us who've managed to talk to him in, in the sport, would agree that he's an interesting guy, pensive. He's on his second contract with mm. that So team. he obviously and likes always, it. Yeah, there was always this image where uh, Romain Bardet, there were people who even said that he pushed the envelope too much in terms of seeking out every kind of conceivable, obviously legal advantage that he could when he was at AG2, exploiting, really squeezing the, the absolute most out of his potential and not really giving, giving himself enough of a break. What he's been saying in interviews over the last few months, because he's signed another contract with them and he might well finish his career with them, um, is that at DSM, a lot of the responsibility, a lot of the burden has been relieved from him because other people are able to look after some of those aspects, some of those dimensions of his performance that previously he was having to take care of himself, the sports science, whether it's the altitude, whether it's the you know the sports psychologist and so on and so forth. So there's a, there is a, definitely a, a framework. It might be quite a rigid framework, but there is one that exists at DSM. And 
it's easy to imagine how that works quite well for younger riders. One of the things, you know, the journalistic shorthand, uh, you mentioned the Moneyball theory, Daniel, and there's undoubtedly a bit of that because the World Tour is not a level playing field, is it? The the difference in budgets from the top teams to the um, the smaller teams is huge. And so I think it's important that there is a kind of diversity of thought, diversity of method, and it wouldn't work if every team operated in the same way. I mean, people often say, oh, you know, I mean, I'm not sticking up for Patrick Lefebvre's methods here at all. I mean, I, I remember him talking in a friend special we did about how for him, the most important thing is the staff and the backroom and he keeps that stable and the riders are to a greater extent, you know, lesser or greater extent, expendable you know they he uses them up for you know when they're not matching the uh, they're not delivering what they're being paid for he will happily let them go or try to move them on dsm antimarche they are in the group where the budgets will be smaller and so they have to do things a little bit differently and dsm particularly has has created uh, a method and an identity and uh, well a reputation perhaps more because you know we only hear snippets about what's the way they work but it won't be for everybody um and so i think uh you know the the money ball thing is perhaps a slightly easy shorthand for saying that the team is a collection of different types of riders you know um as gamay becomes a bigger star and becomes more expensive you know other parts of the team have to shift and change uh, as the contracts of riders change and and the lineup changes they so it's a it's a jigsaw isn't it and i suppose it reminds me of uh, what Doug Ryder was struggling to do for the last three, four years of um, uh, Dimension Data, which became uh, NTT and then Quebeca, latterly, as it was difficult to to find sponsorship to keep the budget high enough. I mean, they were they were basically playing a different sport to the likes of Ineos and Quickstep, and had to do things a, a different way with much less money, and so looking for value. Um, surprising value riders who can perhaps deliver more than they cost is uh, the name of the game and well just a plug for the friend special because I found it really interesting listening to Doug Ryder who I spoke to roughly 10 months apart I spoke to him shortly after uh, the team Quebec finally folded in March 2022. I spoke to him about what his next plans were and we did a sort of recap of, of the, again, the bell curve of that team because they had some incredible highs and then they couldn't quite keep it all together. And he is starting again with Q36.5 Pro Cycling. They're in the UCI Pro Teams category, so the one down from the World Tour. And coincidentally, uh, they've seen some value. They've picked up Mark Donovan, who we know is a talent, but perhaps was a slightly triangular block in a circular hole at DSM. I think he, just reading between the lines, I think may embrace and enjoy the approach at Q36.5 more so than the restrictive uh, methods at DSM, which but you know won't work for everybody the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science thank you very much to science in sport who have renewed their sponsorship of the cycling podcast for another year and we're very grateful to them for that a long-running partnership now goes back to the 2016 giro d'italia and i returned home from marseille to a nice box of science in sport 
goodies delivered to me for my season to help me achieve my objectives as I get back on the bike. I've been running really over the winter, so getting back on the bike uh, now that the weather has eased up a bit. It's been really cold and, uh, well, very, very cold here in the UK over the last few weeks, warming up a bit now. Not quite warm enough for short sleeve jerseys yet, but... Is it secret running from your secret bunker? How come you're not on Strava? I am on Strava, but I don't even have a nom de plume. I just have a private account. It's not a secret. Anyway, in my box, uh, it was like Christmas morning, my science and sport box of goodies. There was some beta fuel, um, the, the powder to mix up into a drink. I'm a big fan of that. Some some chews as well, which uh, we had in our tour of Scotland. Real easy way to get some energy in quickly. Uh, some beta fuel gels, some go gels, and the Rego rapid recovery powder which is essential if you've you know done a long ride uh, just to replace everything that you've lost science in sport fuels some of the best athletes in the world and me <laughs> scienceinsport.com for everything you need before during and after your uh, your riding your running your i don't know anything water polo hockey any sport science in sport will cater for you niente <laughs> Oggi a giorno di mio compleanno ho deciso di dirvi a no, novità, novità, va bene, i miei pensieri, i miei programmi. Niente, è arrivato il momento quando devo dire a tutti, perché credo che tutti si lo meritano a sapere, che faccio ultimo anno di sua bicicletta di strada come professionista. Well, chaps, that was... Peter Sagan sounding as though he is from <laughs> the, the deep northeast of Italy. That was him sort of announcing his retirement at the Vuelta a San Juan. And the Vuelta a San Juan's rest day. Who would have thought that, uh, how, how many days was it? Seven day race would have a rest day. Last week, he sort of announced his retirement. I don't know if you chaps noticed this, paid any attention to it. But in the video that Sagan released, there was sort of two cuts and there was sort of an addendum, there was sort of a footnote at the end where, having said, I'm going to retire from road cycling at the end of the year, he sort of nuanced that and said, well, he's not going to be doing world tour races. And then he also said something, I don't know whether it was in the same video or in another statement or another interview, he talks about doing exotic races, um, whatever that might mean. Um, however, Sagan is going to focus on mountain biking in 2024. He's going to focus on the Olympics in Paris. Don't know whether he's going to be any good or good enough to aspire to win a medal, but it is time to sort of start looking forward. Um, not that we are sort of impatient for him to end his career, but looking forward to the end of Peter Sagan's road career what a fine road career it's been of course he burst onto the scene 2010 Paris-Nice winning two stages 121 wins in total to date three rainbow jerseys 12 tour stages seven green jerseys two monuments three Ghent Vavelgums and a partridge in a pear tree this is and a, and like. a partridge and a pear tree I was going to say uh, GP Mont Montréal as well I've got newfound respect for the GP Montréal having paid more attention to it last year um, didn't really realise how hard that race was but he also won that Peter Sagan uh, let's talk a little bit about what will be his legacy what has been his career arc and whether there might be some kind of swan song whether that's on the road or off-road on knobbly tires in paris next year peter sagan at his very best was just the sort of synonym for domination wasn't he every race he turned up at 
it was just Sagan, Sagan, Sagan. I remember standing with our colleague Magnus Begstedt at the Tour de Suisse, just wondering, day upon day at the Tour de Suisse, how's he not going to win today? Because there were two, three, four, maybe five years where whatever race you turned up at, if he wasn't winning, he was second or third. He was just absolutely everywhere. And, you know, you can talk about the big achievements, but you go to races like Tour de Suisse. He's the record stage winner there. And these are big historic races that have been going for a long, long time. A race with less history, Tour of California. He'd turn up there every year. He was the record stage winner. The three back-to-back world championships. I mean, all the luck involved in those races. The different, almost weird way of racing for a small nation that historically doesn't have a big team on the road, Slovakia. How everything can fall into place over three different, completely different courses for three years and he can win that. I think that tells you something about how versatile a rider he's been. But the thing I'm struggling with here with Sagan, when did he stop being that Sagan and start being a Sagan that over the last week raced in the Vuelta San Juan, didn't win a do, but he was still, apart from one stage, the mountaintop finish in the top nine every day? It's an interesting question. There was there was a point at which Sagan graduated, transitioned to sort of middle age as a rider. He came in, as I said, I mentioned him bursting onto the scene in 2010 in Paris. The way he won, well, particularly one of those stages with a late attack, it was fresh, it was new, he was... Um, you know that was a, that was a time when we didn't see many twenty-year-olds competitive uh, at the highest level. I think he was twenty when he won those races. So that in itself was very, very unusual. And everything about him—I mean, there were these—I can't remember where it originated, but there was this whole incredible Hulk shtick. And everything about the way he comported himself and the way he raced as well was consistent with that. He was bursting out of his jersey onto the world stage. He was. He was sort of putting pay to the previous generation of, of one-day stars, Fabian Cancellara, Tom Boone, and there was a real changing of the guard, and this was clearly going to be the Sagan era. And in fact, there was a bit of animosity from Cancellara in partic- particular towards Sagan, the way he was doing things. Those celebrations in the first Tour de France where he won a couple of stages, um, there was the, I think there might have been the Hulk celebration, there was the Forrest Gump celebration. That was an era in which, well, we we saw the full kind of, the full extent, the full expanse of Sagan's personality. And, you know, there were also moments that he hopefully will look upon with some regret. There was was an impishness about him which teetered into something slightly more unsavoury at times. Remember the 2013 Tour of Flanders where... He pinched one of the podium girls and it was, I mean, it was... It was unacceptable then, but, you know, even more so. I mean, well, there's no degrees of unacceptable. It was unacceptable. And, uh, yeah, that was where it it wasn't impishness, was it? It was, uh, and I think, you know, he probably got away with that quite lightly at the time because of the the reaction and standards then were very different to how that that could be career ending now, really. If if somebody did that now, that could be career ending. But I was just going to say, Daniel, you know, you mentioned the Paris-Nice where he broke through. He actually first kind of came on the radar at the Tour Down Under 2010 when he was still 19. He was a few days away from his uh, 20th birthday and he got in that little break with Lance Armstrong. And I found a quote from them where he said, uh, I know that Armstrong is 19 years older than me, but I wouldn't mind to still be racing in 19 years from now. I love this job. And he managed 13 years at the top level. And I wonder whether, you know, as you say, you know, back then a 19 year old was 
uh, quite a phenomenon. Now we've got, I think, two 18-year-olds lining up for Ineos in Etoile de Bessèges. You know, the, the quest for ever younger and younger riders. We've talked about this a lot, about how it's possibly a consequence of, of the data being available, um, everybody knowing what is required. You know, age is no longer um, you know, something that the, the, the traditionalists are experienced about. You can imagine Hilaire van der Schurens thinking that you can't ride the Tour of Flanders until you're 34. You know, that kind of uh, um, old school thinking. But I do wonder whether Sagan and that moment, Rob, you talk about, you know, he, he kind of straddled these two eras because in his peak years from sort of 2014, 15, 16, can't count 2017 quite so much because he uh, pulled out of the Tour de France after the, the crash, or pulled out, he was disqualified from the Tour de France after the crash with Mark Cavendish in Vitel. But at his peak, Peter Sagan would do 80 to 90 race days, which by today's standards is a very heavy load. We look at Wout van Aert, typically 48, 49 on the road, although he, of course, does the cyclocross as well. But Julian Alaphilippe, around 65 days. Today, Pogacar, 60-ish. Primoz Roglic, a few years ago, would be 65 to 70 days, but that has settled down around the 55, 60 mark now. And I know that's only, you know, 15, 20 days or whatever difference, but that's actually quite a large load when you think about the travelling to races, um, the, you know, the, 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 the impact on the training. It, it probably means less time for specific types of training and as the sport has become more intense as it's sort of uh, become the demand have become more specific it felt a little bit like the wave just kind of crashed over Peter Sagan at one point and that intense spotlight where he was the man Rob as you say that was watched three seasons in a row in the rainbow jersey you could not miss him you know everybody knew where Peter Sagan was including all of his rivals and that perhaps smothered him a bit because when we come down to it I know he's still got some time to go but to show for it the three world titles the seven green jerseys of course you know one of the the greats of the sport but only one Tour of Flanders only one Paris-Roubaix never even started Liège-Baston-Liège although there is still a chance that he'll do it this year and, and no San Remo win. If you'd have said 10 years ago, this guy's never going to win San Remo, you'd be going, no, you're stupid. No, it's nailed on, it's nailed on. And maybe as we keep getting excited about these young riders, just a lesson there, isn't there, for us all that, well, you know, even those things evade people who are, who are sort of, he's born to win San Remo, isn't he? Well, he'll, he'll probably retire with only two monument wins. But, you know, just going back to what you were saying, Lionel, I think he was definitely overexposed. Uh, you know, he arrived at the end of the Boonen um, Cancellara heyday and he arrived in a, period when okay Mark Cavendish had been probably the biggest star with the most capacity to sort of transcend cycling for a while but I think you know Cavendish had well he left HTC was at quick step and um, he he was having his own issues to a certain extent in some of those years and as I said Sagan's personality became well it was irresistible and I think he was a little bit overexposed there was also a team dominating the Tour de France which was not that popular outside of the United Kingdom team sky so Sagan really took center stage and you know he was a guy who okay a lot of his interviews were pretty banal but he was always willing to give an interview um he would 
and still does shuffle along the sort of mix zone dutifully at the start of every race and talk to everyone and you know that was that was also the period when you know we saw things like the Greece video that he did with him, his then wife and he was trying to sort of embrace fame and celebrity outside of cycling and take all that he could from that and I think we got the sense that this kind of ennui this kind of boredom this kind of weariness started kicking and we're talking about sort of the midpoint around about the midpoint of that decade the so the 2010s and actually let's hear from an interview Peter Sagan did with our great friend Richard Moore in 2018 so sort of after the three world titles and you can hear in this interview he does sound a little bit burned he does sound a little bit weary and as I say this is kind of the end of that period I think those three or four years when he really was the biggest show in town. The theme in your book is you know you don't take life too seriously it's you, you want to have fun but you must the, an ingredient as well must be the work that you do. Oh um, yeah, I mean sure. you you must you must work very hard. Oh yeah, the, if you are working hard, then you also want fun. Is work fun? Well, if I have to do only the bicycle and then the free time for me, it's also fun because you're doing sport, you enjoy time with friends. But uh, a lot of time after the results what I did, and uh, it's uh, always more and more to do. It's not only about bicycle, but it's also about, I don't know, interview, publicity, and uh, with people, you know, it's a lot of things. Sometimes you want to have only free time and go for the dinner with friends, but uh, always somebody interrupt you and uh, uh, ask for the photo or something, they want to speak, then it's different kind of of job, Mm. but I still have to get used for it. What's it like for you now to go back home to Slovakia? You know what? Because I've read about how famous you are there. You know when you win, it's the first item on the news and front page of the newspapers. Yeah. So everybody must know you there. What what does it feel like to to go home? I don't, I don't turn back often to to Slovakia. Maybe I'm going to visit family for Christmas, or if I have something to do in Slovakia, then I spend maybe two three days there. This year I was. I spent maybe three days in Slovakia, not too much. <laughs> then I, I turned back for a national championship. And that is also before, uh, after Tour of Swiss, then I go there for uh, three days and I'm going for uh, national championships. And after uh, Tour de France is starting, then uh, it's not too much time. But uh, I prefer if uh, somebody from family can come to me in Monaco, it's much better. We can enjoy life more. In Slovakia, it's almost impossible to go shopping, or <laughs> you know. Really, is it like that? Yeah, I think everybody knows me there. And if I go for a gas station in my car, then it's happened already twice. Then I forgot to pay because everybody just uh, asked me something, and I just went for a toilet, and I turned back, and I didn't pay. <laughs> yeah, funny story. But after I turned back to pay. Good. I'm glad you cleared that up. Yeah. <laughs> so that was 2018, chaps. And, and on the road, I mean, I talked about the changing of the guard, Cancellar and Boonen. If I look back at the type of rider who's maybe stolen th- Sagan's thunder a little bit, you thoughts immediately go to Mathieu van der Poel and Wout van Aert in terms of characteristics of riders. And, and I think if I had to identify a moment... 
Um, Peter Sagan was still very successful in 2018. But if I had to identify a moment, that Dauphiné, Criterion du Dauphiné, that I was covering in 2019, where Wout Van Aert um, won a time trial, won a road stage. And he, he was pretty, he was a new, a new entity for us in that kind of context. Um, that would kind of be the moment for me because... Van Aert really didn't look back from that point and he looked as though he had Sagan's number in the same way that I I remember going back earlier hearing people talking about Sagan having for example Michael Matthews number Michael Matthews might have been destined to you know win every kind of uphill sprint there was on the calendar but then Sagan came along same with Edval Boasenhagen um, Sagan was just faster than better than them more powerful than them same applied to Van Aert with Sagan and, and Van der Poel at that point in Sagan's career. Yeah, a couple of things sprung to mind when uh, I heard the announcement of the sort of first phase of a semi-retirement that's going to become more of a retirement and then a comeback and then a proper retirement, I guess. You know, who knows with Sagan? But uh, the first Tour de France in 2012, you know, it was his second day. They'd been the prologue and they were racing to Serang. They had, they had a steep sort of Liège-Baston-Liège type climb and Sylvain Chavanel attacked and Sagan was kind of caught in no man's land and kind of realised his mistake, drifted back and Fabian Cancellara, who was in the yellow jersey, attacked and Sagan reacted really quickly and then just sat on Cancellara's wheel, despite the fact that Cancellara, who at the time was, you know, the don of the peloton, waving him through and, you know, tur- half turning and, and, you know, insisting that Sagan do a turn to help them stay away. Uh, Sagan, you know, he, uh, not intimidated by that. A young rider doing his first Tour de France, he sat tight. He had a couple of little glances over his shoulder. He saw that Edvard Bosenhagen was coming across, but he remained absolutely ice cool. Sat there in second place. You know, wasn't worried about Bosenhagen jumping from behind, wasn't worried about not being able to come round Cancellara, just kind of exuded, um, you know, a kind of fresh-faced confidence, forced Cancellara to open up the sprint, came round him pretty comfortably. And I can remember the kind of the, the fan reaction, social media reaction, uh, which we all uh, paid a lot of attention to back in 2012, perhaps more so, you know, sort of criticising Sagan for sitting on and not doing a turn. And, and I can remember uh, just there were two camps, really, and I was in the other camp, which was, no, the job is to win the bike race and uh, he can do exactly what, he's, what he wants to do. You know, just because Cancellara is in the yellow jersey, uh, you know, respect extends only so far. And I think, um, yeah, Sagan's kind of uh, single-mindedness and focus and, and what have you, just confidence there. And confidence was something you said about the press conferences. They weren't necessarily uh, scintillating, but they were always quite surprising. Or, you know, he'd turn up in those big motocross sunglasses occasionally and, you know, and <laughs> the result of a new sponsorship deal. But the big one for me was I went to Omloop Het Newsblad in 2016 and there'd been all the hoo-ha about how he'd raced at San Juan with hairy legs. And the whole press conference was dominated, not by, you know, how he's feeling ahead of the race, but just on whether he'd shaved his legs and, uh, you know, what he thought about, you know, the, the the phenomenon of leg shaving in, in cycling. And he really played a straight back to all these questions. And then on race day, he turned up in three-quarter length leg warmers. So you couldn't even tell really whether he had shaved his legs or not. And there was just a sort of single-mindedness about him um, that, that, you know, went beyond just kind of pulling wheelies on the climbs. And uh, But I do wonder, bursting on the scene at 19, you know, the aspiration to last 19 years, very easy to say when you, you're 19 and nothing aches. Um, th- managed 13 years at the top, you know, 33. It's not exactly premature, but 
I do wonder whether it hints at the, you know, the, the slight shortening of careers for these riders who turn pro and start, you know, um, racing at a very young age and whether actually it's, you know, actually more important to look at the the miles on the clock, you know, the race days that are clocked up rather than the years that are, that are spent in the peloton. Just to say one final thing, sorry on, on that and Sagan for me, just to, I think, explain where a lot of those wonderful things that you were just talking about there, Lionel, come from, you know, the, the press conferences, the, the not being bothered by tradition and the shaving legs and maybe not bothering about how he win or how he was winning more or less every single day he was riding with, what, 121 wins in his career to now. Um, he didn't come from cycling, did he? He didn't have a cycling background. He wasn't schooled in it. Certainly road cycling. He was new. He was completely new. And perhaps he blazed a bit of a trail for people who didn't come from that sort of cycling background, hadn't been in clubs, he wasn't bothered. You know, he'd turn up at a lot of races and say, well, what kind of race is this? He sort of vaguely knew what the Tour de France was, but nothing else, really. So I think that was a a big part of his appeal as well. And certainly, like you say, when, you know, in that social media era, when we did pay a lot more attention to everything that was said and done, and, you know, he was sort of the star of that era because of that, I think, because he appealed to a completely different audience. And for that, I think we've got to give a a little bit of thanks because he brought probably quite a few people people who might not bothered watching the sport into the sport just finally chaps i mean a couple of images that will stay with me if i had to show someone in 10 or 15 or 20 years who was peter sagan i suppose the the couple of images that come most readily to my mind's eye i suppose the 2020 giro d'italia where you know he probably wasn't at his best anymore but by sh- sheer sort of force of will he absolutely dominated the stage on the Adriatic coast to Tortoreto Lido um, attacked early kept attacking and eventually won that stage and then a stage he didn't a race he didn't win it was the 2015 Tour de France I don't know if you remember his descent off the Col de Mans coming into Gap he finished second that day but just an extraordinary sort of swashbuckling attack that was Sagan in his pomp and really summed up how dynamic he could be at his best. Um, Those are probably the two, as I say, photographs, Polaroids that that I will remember um, about Peter Sagan. Not the uh, the long hair and the sort of the the trucker's cap or the the photo shoot in the shower for Hans Grower? No, and I certainly won't. <laughs> I certainly won't miss having to interview him. It's become, as I say, he's, he's polite, he's very, very professional and amenable, but it has become a more and more difficult puzzle to solve over the years, just trying to extract any kind of coherent or, or meaningful response. One last thought, though. If this is his final season at the the top level, uh, final stab at a Grand Tour and and the the big classics, does he get one last kind of chapter-closing victory? Daniel, does he win Milan-San Remo when everyone thinks it's all nailed on for Arno Deli or Biniam Gamay? I think he might try something unexpected. I, I don't really see him winning a sprint anymore. Um, he's, he's clearly in decent form at the moment. He was in good enough form to contest the sprints in, Vuelta, in the Vuelta San Juan. That hasn't always been the case at this point of the year. So that bodes pretty well. His team have actually 
improved quite significantly since he joined at the start of last year. They had a really good first season with Peter Sagan and his results probably weren't at the level that Jean-René Bernardo, the team manager, expected or hoped. But I think, you know, he would certainly like to repay some of their faith with with one one sort of last hurrah in a monument. Um, Milan San Remo is probably the, the most likely, I would agree. But I don't think he'll win, no. I don't know. If, I don't know what chance he'll have in the mountain biking next year either. Um, maybe in addition to my PhD in cyclocross, by then I'll have a PhD in mountain biking and I'll be able to hold forth on that in a future podcast. Any thoughts on that, chaps? I, th- I think he was in top form and he was in the the middle of the Sagan era, wasn't he? When he had a go at it in Rio de Janeiro in 2016, and he had a nasty mechanical, didn't he? If I remember rightly, towards the beginning of that race. What I would say is that mountain biking as a sport, rather like road cycling. Um, has moved on exponentially, uh, much more professional, much more competition. Um, so I think it might be rather difficult, but uh, Sagan being Sagan, you just never know. Well, chaps, I think that just about concludes the entertainment for this week. Rob, you're off to buy your house. Um, next week, something even more momentous will happen here on the Cycling Podcast. We will be talking about cyclocross, not for the first time, I should add. And this will be, uh, well... The third or fourth occasion when um, I've had to dip my toe into those murky waters this year. But I think we're going to have Renard Schotter on next week from Sportsat. So look forward to that. I think, Napalm, you'll be back. And, um, well, in the meantime, I'm going to say thanks to Rob. Gracias. Good luck with the mortgage. And thanks to you, Lionel. Thank you, Daniel. Just very quickly before we go, um, just... You mentioned MAP, our clothing sponsor, a little earlier. We'll hear a lot more about MAP in the coming weeks and months. But people have been asking about the Cycling Podcast jersey. I gather it sold out its second run in Australia because obviously it's been a lovely summer down under and uh, people have been out riding in their short sleeve jerseys. Thanks to everyone who sent little pictures when they've spotted the Cycling Podcast jersey out and about on the roads of Australia. Much appreciated. Uh, Still good stock available elsewhere in the world, but with summer coming, uh, be quick. We'll find out a bit more about uh, what's coming next with MAP over the coming weeks and months. And just on the cyclocross point, Daniel got a a special, slightly off-beam episode of Explore coming next week with a uh, an American cyclocross rider called Ben Frederick and uh, well he's got quite an incredible story and he ended up brushing shoulders with Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel and Tom Pidcock over the Christmas and New Year period and he talks all about that that will be out next week and of course my La Marseillaise special which will be out anytime soon just as soon as we finished it basically The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burns.